This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Denise Dupra, a general internist involved in primary care at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and an associate director of education for the Center for Individualized Medicine in Rochester. Every person is composed of a series of genes that determine everything from the color of our hair and our eyes to how our bodies respond to and metabolize medications and our susceptibility to cancer and other diseases. Over the next several weeks, we're going to devote a mini series of Mayo Clinic talks to the incredible fields of genes and your health. We'll discuss topics in genetics that are essential to providing the best care of your patients. Topics will include the microbiome, cancer genetics, artificial intelligence, pharmacogenomics, direct-to-consumer testing, the ethical principles of genetic testing, and how you can apply this information to individualize and optimize patient care in your practice. Today, we're joined by Dr. Perna Kashup, who is a professor of medicine, physiology, and biomedical engineering, a consultant in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology, the Bernard and Edith Waterman Co-Director Microbiome Program Center for Individualized Medicine here at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine in Rochester, Minnesota, and Dr. Marina Walter Antonio, who's involved with the microbiome, in particular with an interest in women's health, particularly benign obstetric and gynecological health challenges and gynecological cancers. The topic of our mini series today is how does the microbiome impact your health? Welcome to Drs. Walter Antonio and Dr. Kashup. It's a pleasure to have you here. So we're going to start pretty simple because for many of us, I think we're still asking the basic question, what is the microbiome? So if I could each have you give your take on the microbiome before we dive into microbiome, what are we talking about when we're thinking about women's health? And for you, Perna, microbiome and the gut, how does this figure in to our health? Marina, can I ask you to go first? What about sure. microbiome? What on earth is it? So the microbiome is a term that is used to refer to the uh, community of microbes that exist in and, and on us. And uh, we've known for, for a, quite a long time that we do have th those microbes, but only more recently have we discovered how important they may be to our health in our gut. We know, and Dr. Kashup will go into that in more detail, but we know that they're essential to our gut health. In my perspective on, on vaginal health and reproductive health and sexual health, we also know that the microbiome plays a very important role. We've known for a long time that there's pathogens that can cause gynecologic disease, sexually transmitted diseases, and so forth. But now we also understand that there are microbes that play a beneficial role and that it's important for us to have them. And when they're absent, just the simple fact of their absence can cause dysfunction, both obstetric and gynecologic, and potentially even be associated with cancer, precancer conditions. And they perform some metabolic functions that our body has evolved to be expect these microbes to perform. And so that's why it becomes kind of a big deal when they're not there. Perna, anything to add? When you think about microbiome, Marina really mentioned sort of the gut and microbiome. And, and 
I'm a little bit more familiar with that, but are there things you want to add? Yeah. So, you know, as Marina mentioned, the microbiome is a collection of microorganisms, right? Oftentimes when we think of microorganisms, we think of bacteria because that's the most obvious, but most of these sites in our body not only have bacteria, they also have fungi, they have viruses, and people don't think of these as normal residents. We only hear about them in the context of infections, but most sites in the body have a normal habitant microbiome, which includes all of these microorganisms. But more importantly, the series is about genes and these microbes harbor genes. And these genes work in collaboration with our own genes, which means that they extend our capacity to do things. So if our genes encode different kinds of reactions, which can break down food, do important functions, these microbes add to it. And in fact, integrate really well with our genes to perform functions which could be complementary or could be detrimental. And that's sort of how I view it is the microbes are not only a collection of microbes, but also a collection of genes, which encompass us, enhance our ability to perform functions from day to day. So when we think of a human, it's a collection of human genes as well as microbial genes, which really makes a human. And just like when we look at different people, we see differences in their appearance, differences, their height, their weight, and oftentimes there are differences in their genes. The same way each individual also harbors a unique microbiome, which means there's a unique set of microbes which are present in each individual. Oftentimes people are focused on a healthy microbiome and you know, just like every individual is got a unique set of genes, they've got a unique set of microbes, and that could be the healthy microbiome for that individual. So there's not this one specific healthy state that we all exist in. Each person has their own healthy state, and that refers to their own genes as well as the microbial genes. So if I understand you right, we're not talking about these genes in the microbe taking us over but they co-inhabitate. Like I'm going to pick up my brown suitcase of genes, which means I have all my genes in my brown suitcase. And maybe my friend has her or his genes with the green suitcase of genes, but they're the unique set of genes that really extend my capacity for metabolism or health. Is that really what we're talking about when we talk about the microbiome and the gene interaction? Exactly. So that, that is correct. And, you know, it's not that because each of us harbors different bacteria and maybe some different genes that we are going to be so different functionally. You know, even when you think about human genome, you know, there are subtle differences which might change some functions. But if you look at the core functions that are present in all individuals and, you know, irrespective of our set of genes, we are still able to perform most of the functions, but there might be changes in some small aspects of that. In the same way, when you think about the microbes, there is a core set of genes which are likely to be present in most microbes to perform those functions, but there might be subtle differences in the microbes in each individual, which may be adapted to that individual. For example, if you only eat meat versus somebody only eats vegetables, the microbes are gonna get very different food types in the gut. And that means that they have to adapt to that kind of nutrition and the microbes which have enzymes to be able to consume that kind of food will be more vibrant in the gut of that individual as opposed to those who would have preferred leftover meat. And so there might be differences among individuals and their metabolic capacity based on a lot of environmental factors. They might be different, but that one is not normal and the other abnormal. 
Yeah, and I really liked your your analogy, actually. I haven't heard that before, but your suitcase, your brown suitcase and your friend's green suitcase. So if you were to exchange those suitcases, say there would be a lot of things that would be in common between you, right? Both you probably would have a toothbrush and a toothpaste and that sort of thing, but but you might have a particular need, so to speak, your baggage that you have accumulated through the years, right, of particular things that are different from your friend and that you carry with you because of where you are now in your health status and and treatments and and drugs you've been exposed to and diet that are going to correspond to those unique differences between the both of you. So Marina, if we can stay with that, you mentioned for a woman, there may be issues related to vaginal health and, and even predisposition to cancers. So is this something, the microbiome that people can change that actually can be beneficial from a health? Let's say somebody who has an abnormal pap smear. Is this something where when you've looked at it from a research standpoint, that changing things or changing the microbiome is something that can be done that can actually change a woman's future health. Tell me what you're doing or what your labs are doing that's looking at trying to explore those kind of questions. So potentially, yes, we're still early in that road, but that, that is ultimately the goal, right? Not just to understand that there are microbes that are associated or correlated with certain conditions, but also what can we do about it? And is there a role that they're playing in that disease or is it a simple correlation? In our particular team, for example, in endometrial cancer, we have found that there is a particular microbiome community that appears associated with women who have endometrial cancer versus those that do not. And what we are doing in the lab is try to understand if there's a role that these microbes are playing early, even before the women develop the disease or that can uh, trigger that progression, potentially disrupt some some of the pathways or, or carcinogenic effect. And then once we understand what that role might be, how can we interfere with that and from a preventive type of approach? And that's most, most of our approaches are preventive, although we, we have some also in the treatment uh, potentially, but we are still early in this road in, in starting to understand mechanistically what the role of these microbes is. That's fascinating because I think that even early on in my training, we, we all learned about H. pylori and its relationship to maltomas and to other gut cancers. And, and it sounds like sort of the same thing is, you know, is this a marker for something else? Maybe not causal, but maybe associated with something. So have you found that there are other genomes, inherent genomes that we have as we start to do whole genome sequencing for people that really are associated with particular baggage, if I may use the term, that certain people with certain genes carry certain microbiomes or are more predisposed to microbiomes. And I guess it really raises the question of nurture versus nature. I'm sure both of you are exploring that. So I'd, I'd love to know what you're finding out. How much of us is nurture? How much is nature? Isn't that the age old question we always want to know? Really interesting point, right? And that's sort of the difference when you think about human genes and the microbial genes. And the reason there has been excitement around the microbiome is that at least in principle, it can be changed. If you look at twins, monozygotic versus dizygotic, monozygotic twins have more similar microbiomes as compared to dizygotic twins, which tells you that genetics does play a role. Now, if the two were to be read completely separately in two different continents, which is not easy to find, something like that happening, but you can imagine that their microbiomes may not reach the same state when they are 60 years old, which means that there is a component of both nurture and nature. But to answer your question, yes, the genetics does dictate 
to some extent what microbes you have, but as we develop, there are other exposures which will eventually decide what your microbiome would look like over time. Yeah, and in the vaginal health, we do know that, that there have been some, some work published demonstrating that there are particular variations, what's called sometimes SNPs, but particular variations in your genome that might make you be more permissive of the presence of certain viruses, HPV, for example, is one of them, or, or uh, uh, certain microbes. And so we do know that there's some, some genetic correlation to, to some of these blind spots, um, to tolerating microbes that probably shouldn't be tolerated because they acutely don't cause a lot of harm, but chronically they do, and they're difficult to get rid of later on. So, and with H. pylori, the other thing I wanted to just mention is that uh, H. pylori story association with, with stomach cancer and ultimately, you know, demonstration of some causation there. It's also, become, also becoming apparent there and, and in other systems that there's rarely just a one microbe kind of hit, right? It's more of a community of events happening, even stages of development of certain networks of microbes, allowing the other microbes to, to then do the harm or, or in collaboration with others. So the, the microbiome is kind of trying to, to get at that. It might be more of a, a network effect um, that impacts ultimately uh, what happens to us. So tell me what each of you are doing right now in your work, both in terms of at your research and then also the translational work you might be doing or what you're doing clinically, because I think it's important to know where we are for many people. I think many of, of the people in our audience, the whole concept of microbiome may be a new idea. And our patients, you know, they're avid readers of the internet. I get this question all the time. Uh, I'm going to take my lactobacillus and that will cure the world. So this is out there. Our patients are getting these genomic tests to alter their microbiome. And so tell me what you're doing now, where you see this going within your own fields, because from a women's health standpoint and from a gut standpoint, let's face it, these are important areas for everybody's health. This isn't unique to anybody. So Marina, can I ask you to go first? Those situations seem to be more and more common. I'm sure Dr. Kashup has, has a few of those as well. In the women's health, for example, requests for vaginal seeding have also uh, been on the rise of, of patients that deliver by C-section and want to expose then the neonate to the vaginal microbiome of the mother to simulate the natural delivery that would seed the, the infant through natural delivery. So there, there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, of, of those types of uh, thoughts. In particular for endometrial cancer, as I mentioned before, we did find an association of particular microbes with the disease. And so one of the direct translations that, that we are exploring is that we can, by using a vaginal swab, for example, we can detect the presence of this microbe. And if you're postmenopausal and, and obese and you have happened to harbor this type of, of microbe, you, you know, we determined that you have a positive predictive value of about 0.86, meaning that if, if you do have this microbe and you're in that uh, patient population, it's very likely that, that you do have endometrial cancer versus if you don't have this microbe. And so that could be um, used for type of early detection type of uh, approaches. We are also really interested in individualized medicine approaches and thinking about how the microbiome fits in with all the other omics, right, that we have in our body. The methylome is one that we're exploring closely because we know that the microbiome is a modifier of some of those epigenetic changes metabolomics, proteomics, all of that, we do need to get kind of a, um, a full picture of what these microbes mean in the context of who you are, right? And this, that is kind of a challenge um, in the field a little bit because it, the complexity of each individual is very 
at large to be assessed sometimes well by cross-sectional studies. So we're kind of thinking longitudinal studies and understanding the progression of each patient, what that means to that patient and how we can interfere and when and to go after those, those types of mechanistic in- interferences. Perna, your thoughts in terms of the gut and what sure. you're doing? Yeah, my clinical practice is predominantly uh, functional gastrointestinal disorders, so conditions like irritable bowel syndrome or functional dyspepsia, and that's where most of my primary lab research lies. It does include patient-based research as well as lab research, but uh, what we were really interested in, in understanding is how do microbes that live in the gut adapt to the gut and also do they regulate how the gut works? And what we found is Till now that there is a reciprocal relationship. So they're very mutualistic to each other, which means they're adapted. Whenever there is patients who have rapid transit through the gut, like in diarrhea, there's a change in the microbes. And what we think is when, and we know that when there is a slowing of the transit, such as in constipation, there's also a change, which means the microbes adapt to these changes. But as a result of that change, the microbes then try to perpetuate that state, which means they then start producing things so that the gut transit remains slow. So it's not a chicken or egg story. It's almost always a feed forward or feedback loop where the gut and the microbial community that it harbors adapt to each other. And that's true for a lot of different conditions. When we think of chronic diseases, where people have inflammation, you know, it's always a question of, did the microbes start the inflammation? It becomes immaterial after a while because even if they didn't start it, they're likely going to perpetuate it. And so when we've looked at it individually, we found bacterial molecules which can change how the gut functions. So we found things like butyrate, which can increase the motility in the gut. We found molecules like tryptamine produced by the bacteria, which can increase secretion in the gut. So there are different ways by which bacterial metabolism can affect gut function. But the main principle to keep in mind is that it's not necessary to think of this as a cause and effect, but the fact that they're both there for a reason. And as things change in one group, the other group is going to change. And that change may like to perpetuate what the prior change was. And so it becomes a sort of a vicious cycle of some sort. So our goal is to try to understand how microbes sort of orchestrate these things in the gut, because then what we can do is isolate those functions and then engineer those functions in a different group of bacteria and then use them similar to like we use drugs. So drugs currently, the way they work is, you know, you identify a pathway and then you give a patient a medication, which is supposed to go and activate or deactivate that pathway. If we can do the same thing, if we knew what bacteria were doing, we can try to engineer them and then make them do that thing in the gut, just like we would make them do with a drug. And we have a lot of experience with this because we already do it with medications, right? So that's sort of the primary work in the lab, but we are also interested in different parts of the gut. So we're looking at both the small and microbiome and the colonic microbiome. We're interested in infectious diseases like uh, C. difficile, which come as a result of disruption of the microbial community and how it exploits that, uh, that disruption and how versatile it is in terms of exploiting that disruption to be able to make home in the gut. And we are also looking at some other factors within the microbiome when it comes to drug responses. And we're doing this primarily in cancer trying to see if microbial metabolism of some of these medications may be driving their efficacy or side effects. Sort of a broader view 
when it comes to the microbial functions in terms of health. But my passion is obviously what comes from the clinic and lands up in my lab. And, you know, that's where we focus a lot of our work. I do want to answer two other questions, which you started with in the beginning. We do get the same genomic reports for the microbiome. So for our listeners, I think I want to clarify, there are no FDA approved microbiome tests available. There was one company which was regulated and has gone under at this point. So it is very, you have to be very careful when people come with these tests, because these are not under the purview of FDA. They're not overseen by any regulatory body, and we cannot make any clinical decisions based on that. And we need to be transparent with our patients and tell them exactly that, that these tests are not valid, just like any other test, which we would not accept unless it's a cap clear FDA approved test, we cannot take these tests. The second point was about the probiotics, you know, the lactobacillus and the cure-all. And we've looked at this fairly recently and it has come out as guidelines within the AGA where we found that probiotics are not effective in most conditions. It's not surprising because probiotics were not really designed to address an underlying abnormality or correct an underlying function. It was bacteria which were conveniently available, generally regarded as safe, and we said, well, now that microbiome is hot, we can just market them as probiotics. And so now you get probiotics in everything. Your toothpaste, your skin ointment, your nasal spray, everything has probiotics in them. And the good part about that is they tend to do nothing for the most part. So it's not a harm in the traditional sense that we think. But to me, it is still harmful because it's an economic harm. And in some individuals, it does actually cause bodily harm. So I think we may consider them to be generally safe, but generally safe is not the same as safe. And so I think those are things to remember. And we should not be inadvertently telling people to take probiotics unless we can demonstrate that they have beneficial clinical use, because to me, that's bad practice. Thank you. That was really actually quite helpful because the probiotic case is fascinating. And and I take the same approach to patients when they come in with things and say, number one, is it harmful? And harm does include the economic cost to your pocketbook. I do have one question. So you mentioned the C. difficile. My patients have had the misfortune in a couple of cases to have refractory disease requiring fecal transplant. So is the microbiome part of the fecal transplant? I mean, are these things linked yet? I mean, these super poops, as I call them, are they a specific microbiome? Are we that far along that we know this is the microbiome of choice for that cocktail? So luckily for C. difficile, which is an acute infection, pretty much a transplant from any healthy individual works. So it's not a specific microbiome. And it actually highlights the point that I was trying to make before. And in this case, the only difference is it's a pathogen. And the pathogen is very hard to survive in the gut. So we are all exposed to C. diff. We have carriers who have no symptoms, which means that it does not really function very well in the gut unless the gut microbiome or the microbial community is disrupted enough that the C. diff can now make home there and start to cause disease. And most often it causes diarrhea. And in that state, you're going to lose a lot of the microbes, which are normal inhabitants. And once you lose a lot of the normal players, our strength is in numbers. So if there were a lot of microbes, which are closely linked and codependent on each other, they would be able to fight off C. diff. But once you sort of scatter them, it's like the divide and rule policy. And once you divide them, then they're just not able to tackle C. diff as well. So what the microbiome transplant is doing is giving you a flurry of new microbes, 
which are all from a healthy individual. But more importantly, these are a group of very well-connected, well-organized and well-adapted microbes, which we are putting into a very disrupted microbial community. So now they can make home there and they can expand. And that's why after we give a fecal transplant, your microbiome looks very much like your donor microbiome. And that is able to drive C. difficile out like any healthy microbiome can do. So it's not so much that the C. difficile is causing it. It's, it's usually a, a susceptibility state or a disrupted state, which makes it powerful. And then once it makes home, then it knows how to play the game and, and, and stay in the gut for long. Great. We're getting towards the end of our recording time, but Dr. Smatter actually gave us a, a wonderful talk looking at some of these familial cancer syndromes. And it strikes me as an interesting question, as you both have talked a little bit about sort of a human genome and human susceptibility and the impact potentially of microbiome. Are either of your groups looking at some of these big familial cancer syndromes and are there susceptibilities or microbiome groups that you're seeing trends toward? And, and Marina, for you with gynecologic cancers, are you finding some of these familial cancers that have a specific microbiome? Uh, you mentioned the marker that for women with endometrial cancer, and I, I don't know if your works look at any of the other gynecologic cancer groups. And, and, and Perna, for you, I don't know if you've done any work within some of the Lynch syndromes or other of the colon polyposis syndromes or have any knowledge of what's happening with microbiome or looking at, is there a fingerprint or a footprint of a microbiome that seems specific to these familial cancer syndromes? Dr. Samadar's work said, you know, with the current screening, we're missing a chunk. We're missing up to 25% or more in some of these groups. And it's, it's interesting, uh, Marina, what you said that, you know, there's some pre and post-test probability that if there's a certain bug, we need to look this woman may be susceptible for subsequent endometrial cancer. So with that as a prelude, Marina, if I can ask you to make some comments on your thoughts about this whole idea that maybe there's a microbiome test that we should be looking at instead of just looking for BRCAs in some of the, and the Lynch abnormalities in terms of people's genomes. We don't have an active study in familial cancers at this point, although we do have some patients that have Lynch syndrome in the endometrial cancer because it's it's really the second most common manifestation of Lynch syndrome and uh, and so in Cowden syndrome as well, but Lynch primarily, and also people with microcytal instability (MSI). We do have some of those patients. You know, we don't have enough of those patients to really answer that question whether there's something particular about them or not uh, statistically, but. But yeah, I think to your point, there is thought there because if you if you basically you're talking about people who are you know have a higher susceptibility to develop a particular cancer because you know their germline um, is already prone to that to a second hit as as we think about it, and we don't know why some of these people you know develop cancer when they're in their 20s versus their 30s or 40s or or much later. We don't know why those differences exist. And it's very likely to be an environmental type of exposure uh, for some of them that very likely to include microbiome functions uh, that are involved in those. So I think there's plenty of reason to to explore that space. And it's something we've been interested for a while um, in Lynch syndrome, because in our microbiome program, we do have focus also in colon cancer and colon cancer and endometrial cancer naturally goes to Lynch syndrome. 
interest. And so we, we have been thinking about ways to, to try to explore um, and understand why these people have, have, have cancer so early versus, versus other family members even that, that display it much later. One thing to remember is, is that there is a heritable component within the microbiome, which means families may pass on certain microbes from generations. And this has been seen when we look at microbes associated with leanness and they've identified microbes which might be seen in lean families. And so there might be similar associations with the microbiome when it comes to cancer. So what you're talking about is familial cancer syndromes for which we already know the gene abnormality. Of course, there is a possibility the microbiome plays a role in those. But to me, what would be even more interesting is if you have families with cancer in whom you cannot find gene mutations, and could the microbiome be playing actually a role there in familial inheritance of cancer, which I don't think people have looked, but you know, you your question brought up that thing in my head. And I thought, you know, that would be actually pretty cool if we were to look at that. But beyond just cancer susceptibility, the other thing is also within these familiar syndromes, we know that we screen them and different people may develop cancers at different time points. It's not exactly like clockwork. And so could the microbiome be one of the environmental factors which determines the prognosis or the time um, to development of cancer or the time for, or, or the outcomes from the cancer. And I look at the microbiome as a factor, just like any of the other cofactors when we think about diseases. And so it's probably not the end all for all diseases, but it's likely influencing the outcome of diseases or treatment to some extent, more so in some people and less so in other people. I think this is all absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's one of those things I learned in medical school that the more I know, the less I know. And I think that as we start to look and, and learn more about the microbiome, it's there, it's around us, it's in us. And I feel like we're just sort of at the bottom of the learning curve and finding out what this means and how it interacts with our body. I mean, I think many of us think about, well, these are the genes I got. And, and, and Perna, you mentioned the lean gene and I'm thinking of as L-E-A-N. And all I know is I didn't get in that line and nobody in my family got in that line. And I wish I could switch to that line now, but I don't think it's possible at my age. But um, anyway, I would just like to thank you both for sharing your insight in terms of what the microbiome, how does the microbiome impact your health? I think we know a lot. I think there's a lot yet to learn. And I would once again like to thank you, Dr. Marina Walther Antonio and Dr. Perna Kashup for joining us today for our mini series on Mayo Clinic Talks. We've been talking about how does the microbiome impact your health with Drs. Marina Walther Antonio and Dr. Perna Yashup. Thank you for your time. If you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe. See, your genes really do matter. You may not be what you eat, but it may be all around you and impact who you are and what you will become. Thank you. Thank you.